Thank you so much. Didn't Rianne do an amazing job of like turning that notice around? Can we appreciate Rianne for that? That was awesome. And youth, if you can hear me, feel free to make as much noise as you possibly can. Last week, we, uh, it's great to be with you, by the way, this morning. Um, lovely to have you with us. just want to add my welcome to you if, uh, if this is your first time with you. So good to have you with us. Last week, we shared some of our plans um, at Vision Sunday to strengthen the church um, by appointing a leadership team to keep us healthy. Um, and so here on the slide is the team that we are hoping to have, the team of four of us, um, which is going to pop up. There it is. Um, so Bethany, Nat, myself and Robin, a team for the church to oversee and care for the church, continue to make sure that we remain on track as we have always wanted to be since we planted four years ago, um, to be a family genuinely following Jesus, discerning where it is he wants to take us, um, making decisions as to how we can best get there as a church family, all of those sorts of things. And last week I shared our plan that on then the 28th of May, We'll have a Sunday to officially pray for the team, appoint the team, get them in place, all of that. Um, and the reason for the gap is just wanting to give plenty of time to process and, um, and have conversations, have feedback, without it feeling like a bit of a rush. Um, and so this is a plan for our team. But as I said last week, again, just want to reiterate that I am absolutely, we are confident that this team is going to do a brilliant job for, uh, in serving the church. Um, a proven bunch of people, I think, these guys, in loving Jesus, loving the church, servant-hearted people, devoted to us as a family. It's going to be a far healthier structure, I think, for us than what we currently have in place, particularly as we're growing quite quickly. But I think also... As a team, we would all want to acknowledge this team is far from the finished article. As you just heard Rosella saying, as, and we celebrated it last week, we are a church made up of huge diversity, 35 different nationalities and growing represented within our congregation, diversity of age, cultural backgrounds, all of these things. So it is an active priority for us that this team would grow and that we'd be adding to it soon, um, to have more women in it, to better reflect the great diversity that God's given us and, and the, um, the gift that he has given us. So this is very much the team we are looking to begin with. And today, as we move towards having a leadership team, you can probably take that down for now, thanks very much, um, unless you want to keep looking at us. <laughs> as we head towards this dynamic and this shift for us, I wanted to give some teaching over the next couple of weeks to share some of our perspective on what we think church leadership looks like. It's one of those topics that does get a lot of debate in church circles, um, how, particularly how men and women interact and what the role they are to have in that together. And so I want to bring us all in on how we see what the Bible is saying about this. And I think even just that, it's just so important for us to recognize where we're, where we're starting from, that we are looking to find out what the Bible says about who we are, what the Bible says about how our church should look like. And I think it's just worth us acknowledging that each and every one of us in this room will come to this issue with our own perspective on it and our own ideas, me included. We'll come with preferences and biases. We'll come with our cultural background, our upbringing, our church background, all of these things and more forming our ideas of who we think should be in leadership or how we think something like a church should be structured. And of course, there's loads and loads of good in that, but it is essential for us also just to be thinking, no, God has made us. The church, we belong to God, and the church belongs to God. And so we look to him for all of these things and what we look like. He gets to say what his church looks like. 
And one final thing, just before we launch into actually looking at stuff. One of my main takeaways from looking at this issue in some detail over the last year or so is that there are really good, really compelling arguments about this from many different perspectives. There are people who love Jesus, people who have got really good heart, people who are really smart, who would disagree with perhaps what we're gonna, the position that we have. And so today is really just our attempt as a church, as a leadership team, to try and be faithful to what we think the whole of the Bible is saying and bringing to you what we think is the best interpretation that holds intention, and it is always a tension, of all of what we think God has to say. And this, but this is definitely not a sense of like, guys, we've arrived on the truth. We have like, we've settled the debate. Everyone else is wrong. You better get in line and listen to this. But more just really are, I think I'd want to be really clear that this is a particular, or in this issue, we don't have to all agree absolutely on every single point of detail. That this is an area within a church family of this size, with this many people from many different backgrounds, where I would expect us to have different views represented within the congregation. And as I said, I would have a lot of respect for other perspectives. Um, and so my hope, I think, is that you might hear what we say over the next couple of weeks and just think, that is a good-hearted interpretation trying to be faithful to God that I can get on board with, that actually perhaps even shapes some of what you think, and you're happy to go with it, even if your personal perspective might be slightly different to how we express things. So does that all make sense? Happy? Good stuff. So today, I want to take a big, wide view of what it, the Bible says about men and women, about how God has created us and delights in us both. And that the story that he's written in the Bible is that he delights to use both of us, both men and women, is part of his purposes. And so next week, we're then going to use this big picture that I'm hoping to set out today as a bit of a foundation, an, an essential foundation. And next week, we'll kind of zoom in a little bit more into the kind of nitty-gritty of church leadership on the ground. And so this morning, we're kind of painting with broad brush strokes this morning. We are going to spend most of our time in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but we're going to end in the book of Revelation. We're going to hit bits in between. It's going to be quite a journey. But my hope is, really, leadership team stuff aside, actually, is that as we look at it, we will just see this beautiful picture of God's perfect design in action, that his purpose has always been for men and women to work together in harmony, and how in his church he is looking to restore that. And so whether church leadership floats your boat or not, I hope that this morning you'll have something to enjoy. So we're going to look in Genesis chapter 1. Thank you for going with me through all of that preamble, but I think it's important stuff. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and to the end. The words will appear on the screen behind me if you haven't got a Bible. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit 
you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Here God creates, as you have just heard, man and woman. To this point in his creation story, the creation story, everything has been good. The light that he made, the darkness, the water, the earth, the stars in the the sky, the animals on the ground, all of it has been good, but it's incomplete. And so on the final day, he says, verse 26, let us, us there, God, the, the Trinity God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And we have in this verse the very first time in history, in the Bible, that we meet people. And I wonder how, if you notice there how God talks about these people. That he starts in verse 26 and he says, so God created man. And then immediately afterwards, he says, and let them. That straight away, we hear this word man, and we might be thinking, oh, that sounds kind of individual, singular, exclusive perhaps, but then immediately to God, he is thinking in terms of them, together. And this them, of course, is then given an identity in the next verse where it says, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Immediately, God is thinking male and female, man and woman, together. This very first encounter that we have of humanity, this very first time we're meeting any of the people, we're thinking, what are these weird things that God has just made? And we're not meeting a man, we're not meeting a woman, we're not meeting Adam, we're not meeting Eve, we're meeting a them, man and woman. That together, immediately, they are seen as one. They are inseparable in the whole of the Genesis 1 narrative. We never get them differentiated in any way, really. They're not talked about as like, oh, we're going to talk about man, and we're going to talk about woman, we're going to talk about Adam, we're going to talk about Eve. It's just a them together, equally in the image of God, equally involved in all that God is doing. And as God makes them, it's clear that he is doing something. He's got a plan up his sleeve. You see it at the beginning of verse 26 where it says, They haven't even been made yet. And he said, let us make man in their image and let them have dominion. Let them reign over all the earth. They've got a job. And then continues in verse 28 where it says, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, etc., etc., etc. Commonly referred to that verse in verse 28 as the creation mandate for mankind. The original calling, the original mission of that God has given to humanity to multiply, to go out, to extend the borders of the garden across all of the world, to maximize the glory of God on earth by filling it with people who share his image and a creation that would sing his praises. As God forms his people here, he cannot stop this pinnacle of his creation, the ones that are going to bear his image. He cannot stop talking in terms of mission and calling and... Uh, purpose that they are going to have. It's like before he's even made them, he's like, these guys, they're going to have dominion over the, the, the world. And then he makes them, he forms them up, and then as soon as he is done with making these people, like the paint on them is still drying, he's like, I'm sending them out. I'm, I'm putting them out into the world. Be fruitful and multiply. 
It's clear God has work still to be done on earth, but he chooses to do it through his people. Now you look on this and you think, do you think God couldn't have done this himself? He's just like, oh man, I've, like, I've created this whole world out of nothing. I've just breathed it into being. But I'm like, gosh, I don't know how to subdue it. I am stumped. Like, Thank goodness I made these people. Maybe they can work out how to do it. In a second, God could have done it all himself. He could have filled the earth with his glory. The creation could have, the, the garden could have spread out. He could have made a whole host of people made in his image, reflecting his glory. The whole of creation could have been done in a second. But his delight, his delight is to watch his glory advance on earth through the work of his people. To see them do the work. You know, this passage, it's well known. It ends with God saying, he looking on his creation and saying, this is very good. At what point does God look upon his creation and say, it is very good? After he's made man and woman in his image? Nearly. Not quite. After he's made the heavens and the earth, after he's made man and woman in his image, and after he has given them their calling, their mission, their assignment, only then, only then does he say, this is very good. Only then is God satisfied. He looks and says, yes, this is what it's meant to look like. God's delight in his creation is to see his people doing his work. This is what they are made for. That's what comes out through the whole of this passage. These people are made to do God's work. This is their purpose. This is our purpose. Not to live for our own calling, not to live for our own mission, not to live for our own glory, but to live for his. They are made to do the work, and they're made to do it together. Verse 26, and let them have dominion. Then going into verse 27, male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. All of the call, all of the work is given to them. There's just this heartbeat, this pulse that goes through the whole of this passage of themness. That this original calling of humanity was this man and woman jointly called into mission, commissioned out by God. Both of them in this briefing room with God, given complete ownership and responsibility. You have to shoulder this together. His good and his perfect purposes. This is a picture of man and woman working together to fulfill this mission that God has given them. And the essentialness of working together continues then into Genesis chapter 2, where you kind of, we get this zoomed-in retelling of man and woman being made again. And it emphasizes again, I think, how vital... This themness that we see in chapter 1 really is. First, God creates man, man out of the dust. He breathes life into, as he forms the dust, he breathes life in, Adam's made. Then he goes about and makes the garden. And we'll pick it up in verse 15, where it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So again, work it and keep it. We're getting this emphasis on man's purpose, their mission that God has given them, created for this. And so we get this picture of Adam here in the garden on his own. In this retelling in Genesis 2, the woman has not yet been made. And so Adam is, 
He's in the garden. He's ready to go. He's ready to work. He is ready to get on with this. He's got his spade in his hands. He's got those giant, giant scissor things. What are they called? Shears. He's got the shears. He's, he's raided home base. He is ready to rock. He's probably got one of those like backpack sprayer thingies that you can get. And he's like, I'm ready to do my thing. Like, I am going to water those hydrangeas. I am going to prune those azaleas. I won't give you any more examples because I don't know many flowers. And as we read through then the next verses of Adam in the garden, ready to work, you might think, this guy's just going to nail it, surely. Like, you would not believe the roses that Adam got. The crops just towered up. He had this little herb garden over here. Adam was a dab hand at nursing that basil. Like, you're just like, this is surely, this is going to, it's like a perfect creation. Adam has quite literally been made for this. He's in his sweet spot. It's all going to go great. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good. The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. So here we go. We've got Adam in his place of work, in his place of calling, made for this. And God looks at it and says, this is not going to do. This won't work. That Adam trying to perform this mission on his own is not good. So Adam, you need some help. And this word helper that we see referring to the woman. It might sound a little bit kind of belittling, perhaps, but actually it's a word that really helps us understand what it is that God is trying to communicate through this passage. It's one of those classic words It's really hard to translate from Hebrew into English directly. So best is to kind of understand how does the Bible use this word elsewhere in the Old Testament? 20 times it appears, and nearly always it is referring to God coming to the aid of man. Here's just a couple of examples. Psalm 70 But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. There's that word, help, and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. And how about this in Deuteronomy 33? There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. This picture of a helper that we get is not a kind of, oh, Adam, would you like me to make you some lemonade and like, get past you the weed killer? This is a helper that rides through the heavens to help. We find this word most used actually when God is coming to the rescue of someone who is so desperately dependent on the help, is insufficient, obviously in need. It's the word that Jesus uses to speak of the Holy Spirit. Now, I will send you a helper. When the disciples are needy, they're powerless, they are quite clearly insufficient to do all that they are called to do, Jesus says, I'll send you a helper, and that helper will come and fill that need that you are so aware of. That's what's going on here. That what follows on from Adam hearing these words from God, you need a helper, is actually a fairly bizarre scene that unfolds, where God basically sits Adam down, and he's like, right, I'm going to bring you each and every one of the animals that I have made, one after another, and you are going to name them. It's like an interminably long day at the office here for Adam. It's like, I'm going to bring you all the panthers, the falcons, the hyenas, the mongooses, the... Mongoose? Mongoose. Mongoose. The platypus. Like, imagine meeting that fellow for the first time without any warning. like, what are you? Brings them all to name them. 
But it's clear that there is also something else going on, because after that procession in verse 20 in chapter 2, it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So through this kind of enormous conga line of animals coming along, God is doing something. He's not actually hoping to find a helper for Adam, like give that giraffe a spade, see what he can do. No, no, he's trying to show to Adam, animal after animal after animal, that in all of the created realm, the help that you need is not yet here. Each animal that comes builds the tension. It's making Adam see for himself the lack, that there is none like him, to feel it, feel the inadequacy of him on his own, feel his own incompleteness, that the mission that God has given them, the call that God has said, just cannot happen without one like me working alongside me. And so God puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, fashions a woman, and then in verse 23, you sort of feel the outburst of joy from Adam. It's like, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. There's this eruption of fulfillment. At last, like this is the one that I have been waiting for. This is what I've been lacking This is the one I've been missing. I need this help. She is coming in to complete my incompleteness. It's instant recognition from God, uh, from Adam, sorry, of this is someone that's just like me, but also different. She shall be called woman. He knows in this instance, what he's not lacking, he's not lacking manpower. He's not like, to do the work, I, he, I, give me another Adam. He doesn't need some buddies around him, doesn't just need muscle or more people resource added into the project. He's like, no, no, to do this mission, I need one special, unique person. I need a woman. I want us to see something of what the dramatic movement is happening here in Genesis chapter 2. Who is the one that in this chapter we... Uh, is presented to us, standing in the garden, inadequate on his own. Who is pictured to us as the one that is unable to do the work that is required? Who is the one presented to us as dependent and in need and insufficient? It's the man. And then who is the one that is shown to us to be the answer? The one who actually all of creation in this moment is actually awaiting. The one who is unveiled as the vital piece, the key, the fulfillment of God's, the the, the key that will come to fulfill God's purposes. It's woman. On his own, man can't even get started in this job. But as soon as the woman comes in, the mission gets going. The very next verses we read, they join together in one flesh. And they make a start on the call of chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply, to start to advance God's glory on the earth. This here is page 3 of the Bible. Opening moments of humanity. Series 1, episode 1 of the drama of human history. And we see God making here an intentional statement, intentionally trying to communicate. Look how important Look how central women are to what I have planned in this world. Men are important too. You can turn to 
many different passages in Scripture, many different places that will rejoice and celebrate in good, godly men. It's probably something that we need a bit less convincing of, generally speaking. But right here, this particular moment, Genesis chapter 2, God is wanting to showcase just how vital, just how needed the woman, woman is for the work of building and growing his kingdom. I really want us to hear this and to see this. Women, I want you to hear this and see this. Just how vital, if you only take one thing away from this morning, really, just how needed women are for the work of building God's kingdom. Central. Not because I say it. Not because it might be a you know, good soundbite in today's cultural moment that fits quite nicely, but because God, through his word, says it. In this grand unveiling of his people, this pinnacle of all that he has made, he wants us to see this. Through the whole of church history, the opportunity for women to truly flourish in, within the church, to truly feel that sense of, I am vital here, vital to God's mission, has been severely limited in, in lots of different ways. Depending on certain contexts, social environments perhaps where patriarchy is the norm, male-dominated cultures, all of those sorts of things, that has often been imported into the church where you've seen very clear oppression and silencing of women. But I think perhaps maybe more common in this room, I, I don't know, but I'd, I'd imagine maybe more common in this room would just be a much more subtle uh, way in which that has worked out that perhaps people have been in environments where it has just felt like the role of women in maybe your church history has just, it just hasn't been as important as the role of men. Where what women in the church have to offer has often been perhaps seen as a very narrow, very limited, almost prescriptive way of like, this is what it looks like for you to be a woman in the church. And that has maybe perhaps shaped self-understanding of what I have to bring, the gifting that I might have, the calling that God might have over my life in very subtle ways. Because you've always been told, maybe directly people have just outright said it, or there's just been an atmosphere of women in the church take a bit of a back seat. That has never been God's heart. From the outset, from the very beginning we see, we get this dramatic display of the essential place of women in the church, women in his kingdom. This thing is going nowhere without a woman. This plan is finished. The work of building, the work of growing, the work of multiplying just cannot happen without women. And this is the image that then closes chapter 2, crowns the whole of the creation narrative. The arrival of the woman, the joining in one flesh, and it's then that humanity gets on with what they're called to do. Together. Both doing their bit. Both playing their part. This is the finish of creation. It's like the curtain drop moment of creation. The ideal picture of human flourishing and how things are always meant to be. And what is it? This vivid picture of unity working together in God's purposes living out their themness that God has given them. And you might be thinking, Duncan, why are you spending so much time here? Why is so much time in Genesis 1 and 2? Like, if we're talking about church leadership now, we're talking about how men and women are meant to relate now in the 21st century, 
Why so much time here? Because when we turn to the New Testament, where God is speaking more directly about some of these things, speaking to the church, speaking into this situation practically, specifically, and speaking about relationships between men and women, which actually in the New Testament doesn't come up all that often. When we see that, it's often referring back to this. Jesus, when he's asked a question about divorce by the Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, he says to them, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Quoting from and applying a mix of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 into the relational situations of the day. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about marriage, in the same way, he says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives. And I won't read the whole passage, but grounds it then back in, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Similar to Jesus, he's quoting from Genesis 2, speaking into the very practical relationship issues of the day. And then in the very complex head-covering passage in 1 Corinthians 11, which I'm afraid we do not have time to get into today or next week. But if you want to know more about it, you want to talk about it, feel free, like, honestly, come and chat with me. Very happy to. It just takes so much of our time to get into all of the, the weeds of it. It's complex, but it's so helpful for our context because it's one of the only places where Paul is directly talking about man-to-woman relationships within the church of, of non-married couple, non-married people, how men and women should relate together in the church. And what he's, through his argument, which again, I won't read it all out because it's quite long, but he's forming the basis of his reasoning throughout. In verse 8, he says, for man was not born from woman, but woman from man. And then in verse 12, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God, drawing again on the creation, one, Genesis 1 and 2 principles. And the thrust of this passage is about Paul wanting to make sure that women, all women in the church, are treated with dignity and honor in a culture that very much did not show women dignity and honor. And he's supporting it with these clear, direct references back to Genesis chapter 2. The point I'm trying to make here is that whether it's relationships between, uh, between men and women in the household or in the church, this harmony of Genesis 1 and 2 is the touchstone that Jesus and Paul and others are keeping on coming back to. And Jesus and Paul, they're experts in the law of God, as were much of their audience. So you might expect they just dip back into that. Now that's the wisdom that God has given the people for conducting their relationships. Or you might think Jesus surely has come to show a whole new way forward. There's like unveiling a whole new thing. But they don't. In each and every example, they're reaching all the way back into the creation story. So creation shows you the wisdom that you need for today. It's revealing to you the pattern of how your relationship should be, applying it into very real, very practical issues, the detail of everyday life, marriage, interplay between men and women in the church, saying what you see in Genesis 1 and 2 should inform how you relate today. And as Jesus quotes Genesis 2 here, we see that he is coming to preach this dynamic of unity and harmony into a broken world. Because he's speaking about divorce. He's speaking it into broken relationships. The fractured, shattered nature of the relationships that we know today to be our default setting. 
ever since the fall. At the fall, just six verses and one bite of a piece of fruit after this picture-perfect scene that we had at the end of Genesis chapter 2, the curse of sin entering into the world. And one of the things we see in the curse of sin is it particularly impacts relationships between men and women in an explicit way, destroying this unity, bringing discord and, uh, and brokenness and opposition between men and women. The ESV translation, I think, does capture it pretty well, where it says, where God's saying to women in Genesis 3.16, he says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, again, the precise meaning of this verse is notoriously hard to pin down. But I think at its very simplest level, it's clearly speaking of disharmony and discord that will come between man and woman as a result of sin entering in. This disunity that is just now the air that we breathe, isn't it? That we, is so familiar to us that men and women would have strife and difficulty that an alternative is almost impossible for us to imagine. It's just baked into our systems and the structures of today. Every civilization of every country through every century, there has been disorder between man and woman. That is so part of our history, we just don't think of it being potentially any other way. That instead of having this togetherness, there's this grasping for power and struggling against one another, which overwhelmingly, of course, has seen women suffering at the hands of men. And we are seeing this all the time at the moment. Things like the Me Too movement, which exposes the, the abuse and the manipulation of women in, the, in Hollywood, just happening in, in some of the most powerful, most, most rich parts of our, of our nation and of our, of our culture. We see it in people like Andrew Tate, who's in the news at a lot at the moment. Someone with clearly misogynistic views, but being so popular around so many people. See it in so many sexual misconduct allegations in the top echelons of UK government, just ongoing. This is meant to be the most progressive, advanced, accepting society the world has ever known. We long for this. We long for unity between man and woman. We just can't make it happen. They're just daily we see evidence of this curse. There's this wedge driven between man and woman just driving further and further away from being able to work together. And into this came Jesus Christ, a man walking, teaching, preaching, announcing the kingdom, speaking once again this reality of Genesis 2 into fractured relationships, into broken relationships announcing it does not have to stay this way. This unity of creation, this reality that we long for, is not a lost world, not just the, oh, that was nice back then, things are very different now, but saying, no, 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 that is what I've come to restore. Restoring it in his church. Here's Paul again in Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That the disharmony between man and woman, this wedge that driving and separating them, now being healed in Christ Jesus, in Christ alone, like we were singing before. Now, of course, this verse here is reaching further and wider than just relationships between man and woman. But it does include this. It does include this kind of reversing or undoing of the curse that was spoken over humanity, making us one, bringing us into unity, whole in him. 
because of verses like this, Paul can say to his church, in Christ, man and woman can now start to find peace again. In Christ, marriages can really start to be what they were designed to be again. In Christ, the the oppressive structures of the world can be turned on their head and subverted within the church. Last Sunday at Vision Sunday, we spoke about being a priesthood. The idea that each of us are priests and, and called not just to be a chosen few in the church, but all of us called to this role of being honored by God and given a vital, needed role in the church. And really, I don't think there's any better picture in the New Testament that displays that this Genesis 1 and 2 dynamic of themness is now being restored in the church today. Here's Revelation chapter 5. And we have a scene here, just a bit of context, a scene of angels and people in heaven. They're worshipping Jesus. And they're singing about the church down on earth today. And this is what they sing to Jesus. They say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Now, if you needed one single text to show that the way of the kingdom of God is also the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and it's happening in the church now, I think this is a pretty good one. That by his blood, Jesus is gathering in a people from every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. Again, see the inclusivity of that. See, as a, no caveat, whoever you are, you are included and drawn in to be priests. That as we looked at last week, this role of priest explicitly, clearly in the New Testament, sorry, Old Testament, this was a male-only role to be performed only by men. And now everyone gets to get in on it. Men and women from every tribe, language, people, and nation, working together as priests. Priests that extend the glory of God throughout the world, just like Adam and Eve were called to do in the, in the beginning. Priests that, as it says in verse 10, and they shall reign on earth. In case we don't know quite what it means for us to be a kingdom and priests together, John, who's writing this, is just like, I'll just stick this in here to reign on earth. Now, I would want to exercise caution about picking up a verse like this and just running with it and extrapolating out from it your entire theology about men and women in leadership. Because I think, as we'll see next week, the Bible wants to add more texture, more nuance to to things that we have to take into. But what we are seeing here in this picture explicitly about the New Testament, explicitly about what the church is today, is this all-inclusive picture of a people coming together, to reign together, to be in authority together, to lead together, with no exceptions stated, no caveats, and phrased in a way that I think almost seems to be a deliberate parallel to the original call back in Genesis chapter 1, where it says, and they shall reign on the earth, in verse 10 in Revelation 5, sounding those same notes as, and let them have dominion over all the earth. I think this is just a beautiful picture of what the church is meant to be. 
all kinds of men and women coming together and priesting together, reigning together, ruling together, like we were always meant to do. Like in the beginning, like at creation, working together to build God's kingdom. It needs men and women working together. This should have big implications for who gets to lead within our church. But putting aside church leadership for a moment, I just think in all areas of church, there's just something beautiful, something wonderful about harmoniously, as a family, being made up of men and women, working together, being united together, recognizing we are at our best only when we are doing it together, building church together as men and women. Reflecting in our own unique ways what this image of God really looks like. I think we see it happening in something just as simple as like I'm serving on the welcome team and I'm serving with men, serving with women, and you see the beautiful picture of it. You saw it in our worship time, like lots and lots of different voices coming out of a man and a woman and a man and a woman. It's just the beautiful diversity of God's kingdom. We can kind of miss that because it happens all the time around us, but the beautiful diversity of God's kingdom is man and woman coming together and 35 nations and, and just seeing the wonderful tapestry that he makes. I think this should form within us just this deep appreciation for the other sex. It's like, you are different to me. But we just couldn't, I just couldn't, without you, we couldn't do and be all that we are called to be. I couldn't be all that I'm called to be, just like Adam in the garden, without the other sex around. It completes God's church. And this is only possible in Christ. Only possible in a people living in the kingdom and walking by the Spirit. This is, it describes like a new reality that Jesus has brought us into. And at the same time, I think if we as a family really want to see this happen, we have to recognize that we have to choose to live in this reality. And what this means is us choosing to turn away from perhaps stereotypes or views or images of the other sex that culture would so gladly provide us with. Just say, no, I'm going to choose not to objectify that person. I'm going to choose not to have a default perspective and posture of suspicion towards them. I'm going to choose not to patronize or belittle or demean or ridicule, whether outwardly or inwardly. And instead, I'm going to choose a posture of love towards the other sex. I'm going to choose to believe and see their essential goodness in God's creation for the purposes of building his church and advancing his kingdom. I think that from Genesis to Revelation, the picture that God is wanting to show us, his heart is he longs for men and women to be in this together, doing his work, vital in creation and now restored in his church, reigning together today. And this is just part one. So next week, this big picture that we've looked at today, we are going to be like the necessary backdrop that we have to then start to get into some of the nitty-gritty, the framework that we need to start to interpret some of what the New Testament has to say on these things as we look at particular questions of eldership and church leadership and our particular model of leadership. But for now, I'd love to pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you have created... We thank you that you have called, that each one of us is your handiwork. And again, we just submit ourselves to that reality, that you have made us, you have called this church into being, that you get to say what we're like as individuals and as a family. 
Again, we just ask, would you help us to come under that, to recognize your handiwork? And we thank you for this wonderful picture of the story that you have made of us working together in our difference for your glory. And I pray, God, you would help us to appreciate this, to love it as you love it. Help us to lay down perhaps some of our own things that we are bringing to this, our own preferences, own biases. Help us to be a family that truly lives this out, this wonderful, beautiful dynamic of men and women called together, working together, needing each other for your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. Wonderful to have you with us. Um, Don't forget worship and prayer this week at Luther King House on Thursday. Again, look out for communications on where to go. Um, Looking forward to that. should be great. And we'll see you next time, hopefully, for part two on this to complete the picture. Thanks so much. And uh, do stick around for tea and coffee.